You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Um, Malachi um, means... The name means my messenger, and he was God's messenger to a people, um, the people of Israel, um, at a period of time when the people of Israel had become quite disillusioned and angry with God. And and I think there's probably people in the first service and probably people in this service who struggle with God at times. Uh, It's easy to become disillusioned with God because we, we pray, we want certain things, we want God to do certain things, and and it just doesn't happen. And we become frustrated, we become sometimes jaded, we become sometimes very disillusioned with God. And I would like as we begin this morning to, to pray for you, if that's you. Sometimes it's hard for us to admit it to ourselves that we're frustrated with God or that we feel that God has let us down or that his timing is off. But when we strip away uh, everything, we know that we still believe, we still have faith, but sometimes we just wonder and we wrestle with God. And so I would like this morning just to pray for you as we begin and ask God's grace to be upon us and be upon you specifically. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you're a good God. We know that you're perfect in all that you do. You never make mistakes. Your timing is always perfect. You are never late. But Lord, when we look at the circumstances of our lives, sometimes we question, sometimes we wonder, sometimes we just wrestle with the fact that God hasn't answered, God hasn't provided God still is withholding. We are still struggling. We are still in this particular valley. And Father, I pray this morning that you would give us grace as we study this passage of Scripture. Help us to understand that the people of God then and the people of God today are the same people, and we wrestle with the same issues. And the solution to our wrestling, the solution to our struggles is the same. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes. I pray that the Scriptures would grab us And I pray that we'd be transformed by them. I pray that we would come to the place where we could rest in the fact that you love us, that you're a good God, that you're sovereign. And so I pray that you would now work in the hearts, particularly of those of us who wrestle with questions, big questions. Why me, Lord? Why am I going through this now? And so I pray that you would just give us an extra measure of your spirit this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Use this time, I pray, to transform our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi was called by God, the messenger of God, to proclaim God's word to the people who had begun to come back from Babylon in the late the early 400s B.C. He prophesied sometime after the second temple had been built. He is the second last Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Malachi was the second to the last of the Old Testament prophets. And I'd like to draw your attention right away to what I think probably the most important thing he says in this passage of Scripture Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Malachi makes a promise to the people of Israel, and it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In this passage of Scripture, the second last Old Testament prophet predicts the last Old Testament prophet. He announces the coming of John the Baptist, who will prepare the way of the Lord. And then he says that the messenger of the new covenant will come. He predicts the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is fantastic. It's phenomenal that he does this. Now, when Malachi would have been in the city gates of Jerusalem or going around Israel proclaiming this message, when he mentioned those words, chapter 3, 1 and 2, it would have absolutely arrested the people who were listening to him. It would have stopped them in their tracks. They would have turned around and they would have looked at him. Their, their jaws would have dropped and they would have said, what did you just say? What did you say? It would have shocked them to hear what he was saying. And in order to explain why it would have been so shocking, why it would have been so arresting, why it would have been so appealing for them to hear this, we need to think a little bit about Israel's history. Over the centuries, from the time of David and Solomon, Israel had gradually slid into apathy, nominalism, sin, and ultimate apostasy. They had, they had moved far, far away from God, and they become like the nations around them. They were no longer the separate, set-apart, distinct people that God had called them to be. And so finally, although the prophets warned them, finally God judged them. In about 606 B.C., Israel, the nation, kind of was subsumed under the empire of Babylon. It became part of the Babylonian Empire. And while it was still an independent province, so to speak, while it was still allowed to retain its king, it was nonetheless part of the Babylonian Empire. It was during that time that Daniel and his friends went to Babylon. There was an exodus of a lot of the prominent people from Jerusalem, from Israel, to Babylon, Ezekiel being an example of that. About 20 years into this domination by Babylon, Zedekiah the king, the last king of Israel, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar, having had it up to here with the Jewish people, brings his army, he surrounds the city, he lays siege to the city, thousands of people die of famine in the city as Deuteronomy chapter 30 predicted would happen if people of God turned their back on their God. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar's army broke through the walls of Jerusalem. They raised the city to the ground. They burned the temple down and took the rest of the leading citizens into exile. Nebuchadnezzar killed Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. He finally plucked out his eyes and then killed him. The years go by from 586 to 539 when the Babylonian Empire fell to the empire of the Medes and Persians. And in 538, Cyrus the Great, whom Isaiah had predicted would come 150 years before this, we read in the book of Isaiah that Cyrus would be raised up by God. In 538, Cyrus made a decree saying that if the Jews wanted to go back to the land of promise, they could go. And so in 538, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, about 40,000 Jews left Babylon and they went back to kind of rebuild the city, rebuild its walls, rebuild the temple, rebuild the nation. And so Zerubbabel led that first wave back. We know from the history of the the Bible that following him, years later, came Ezra, and then following him came Nehemiah, who finally built the walls. 
Zerubbabel's group started to build a temple, but they kind of got waylaid. They were more interested in building their own houses, their own paneled houses, and living in luxury rather than finishing the temple of God. And so through the preaching of uh, Zechariah, through the preaching of um, Haggai, uh, the people were encouraged to bring their tithe into the temple and finish the work of building God's house. So 20 years after it had begun, they finally finished building the temple in 516 BC, exactly 70 years as Jeremiah had predicted, 70 years after 586 when the temple was destroyed, 516 BC, it was rebuilt and dedicated. But it was not long before the people again began to fall into their sinful ways. They began to become nominal very quickly. They began to become trivial about worship. The priesthood became corrupt. Divorce became rampant. Worship became trivialized. Tithing essentially stopped. Immorality was widespread and social justice had been forgotten about. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, having sort of done that little sort of jaunt through the history of Israel, is why? Why after the the Babylonian conquest of Israel? Why after all the suffering that was caused because of God's judgment? Why after 70 years of captivity? Why after dedicating a new temple? Why did the people so quickly slide back into nominalism and sin, which was going to lead to apostasy unless something was done? Why? The answer, the reason, I believe, for the apathy and for their sin was pretty simple. I believe that it was rooted in their unfulfilled expectations. You see, the people of God had anticipated that the glory cloud of God, the Shekinah glory, would fall on the temple in 516 BC when they dedicated it, the second temple, just as it had fallen on the first temple when Solomon dedicated it 500 years before. They were completely convinced that if we build the temple, God will return in the, in the Shekinah glory. The glory cloud of God as it had fallen 500 years ago will fall again upon us. And with the coming, with the return of the Spirit of God, there will, he will usher in a new age, a messianic age of peace and prosperity. Israel will again reach a position of dominance and control and power as it had under both Solomon and then before him his father David. But it didn't happen. They knew that the book of Ezekiel, which was written in exile in Babylon by Ezekiel, had, had, had seen the fact that the Spirit of God had left the temple. You read about that in chapters 8 through 11. The Spirit of God took his leave, and they were fully convinced that when they built the temple, when they dedicated the temple again, that the Spirit of God would rush in, and everything would be new. Everything would be so much better. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. That age of prosperity and peace and freedom didn't materialize. And the people of God became disappointed in God. The people of God became disillusioned with God. The people of God became jaded and cynical and angry with God. And so when Malachi preached... The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It would have absolutely gripped these people. They would have been, just, they would have been walking, they would have heard the message, and they would have gone, what did you say? 
The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yeah, we thought that, but he didn't. Malachi said he's coming. He's coming. Now we know from the vantage point of hindsight that Malachi's prophecy was fulfilled in 30 AD when just as Zechariah had prophesied, a contemporary prophet to Malachi, that the Lamb of God would enter the city of God humble, mounted on the foal of a donkey. The day that the Son of God came back to Jerusalem, this prophecy was fulfilled. That's the day that Israel's exile truly ended when Jesus entered the last week of his life before he went to the cross and inaugurated a new covenant of which we are a part. But for the people in Malachi's day, that was still 400, 500 years in the future. That was still something to come. They had expected God's God to answer their prayer. They had expected God to show up. They expected God to do something miraculous. They had expected God to intervene in their circumstances, and God had let them down. And I think a lot of times we can relate to those people. We have expectations. We have unfulfilled expectations of God. And it's easy for us, like them, to become disillusioned. We've been praying for that prodigal son or prodigal daughter for years, and he or she is still not saved. We've been asking God to fix the financial situation, and we are still struggling in it. We're waiting to get that promotion, and it just isn't coming. We go to the doctor, and he's told us something that we didn't want to hear. A spouse leaves. We want to be married and we're still single. We want children and we can't have them. We want to be retired and God says, it's not my timing. And there's just a variety of other issues that confront us and it's perplexing and it's difficult and it's confusing and it's easy for us to become disillusioned with God, to be disappointed by God, to be frustrated with him to question his goodness, to become jaded, to become cynical, to become angry and say, God, you don't really love us. You don't really love me. Because if you loved me, you would do thus and so. Because obviously I know what's best for me. Jaded, cynical, angry, disillusioned, disappointed Christians become sinning Christians pretty quickly. That's what the book of Malachi points out to us beyond any shadow of a doubt. They're back in the land. The temple's built. God lets them down. They fall into sin. And so we need to think about how we deal with disillusionment. When God disappoints, how do we respond? Well, I think the answer to that question is that we need to remind ourselves of what God reminded Israel of, particularly in this book, but particularly in the first chapter of this book. In the first chapter of this book, God reminds Israel of three things that we must remember. When our circumstances are difficult, when God isn't answering our prayers, when things aren't working out the way we think that they should, when our circumstances are challenging, we must remember three things. And the first thing is this. Remember to rest in God's particular love for you. Read with me from verse 2 through 5. Oh, we won't go all the way to verse 5, but read with me from verse 2. 
God says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're going to rebuild, God says, I'm going to tear it down. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The children of Israel were children of Jacob, not Esau. Israel came from the line of Jacob. Edom came from the line of Esau. And God's saying to these people, listen, I love you. You're jaded, you're disappointed, you're disillusioned, your expectations haven't been met, but remember, I love you. I love you. I have chosen to set my love upon you as a nation. Now, the Apostle Paul takes it one step further. If you go to Romans chapter 9, I ask you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 10, Paul says this, and it's absolutely stunning, and it's important for us to wrestle with it and to believe it, even though our minds might not fully comprehend it. Paul says this, and not only so, this is verse 10 of Romans chapter 9, and not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebekah was told by God, the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. Paul quotes that from the book of Malachi. Malachi spoke about it because it was in the history of Israel. Read about it in Genesis. And so what, what, the, what the prophet is saying to the people of Israel is this. Right now you're feeling jaded, you're feeling disappointed, you feel that God has let you down, you feel that God hasn't answered your prayers, you are disappointed and disillusioned because of what God hasn't done. Remember this, you're loved. And in the new covenant, I can say this to you with every confidence in the world, when circumstances don't go your way, when that prayer isn't answered, When you get that diagnosis, when you have that setback, when your career path seems to be blocked, when things aren't working out and circumstances seem to be against you, know this, God loves you. The gospel says that when Christ went to the cross, he did not go to the cross for some amorphous, undefined, nondescript thing we call humanity. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross for you personally. There's an old country and western song that my friend who just passed away used to sing all the time. And it's it's this, that when Jesus was on the cross, I was on his mind. And you've got to know that. Life is going to overwhelm you with negative experiences. Life is not easy. It's difficult. And it's easy for us to look at our circumstances and become jaded and angry with God because God is not doing what we want him to do. You can't forget. You can't let go. You've got to hold tightly to the truth that you personally, individually, particularly are loved by God. Christ went to the cross for you. Personally, he knew his sheep, and, he, and you were one of them, and he went to the cross for you. 
He sacrificed his life. He shed his blood in order to purchase and redeem you. God punished Jesus because of your sins. Christ gave his righteousness to you. It was imputed to you by Jesus. So today you personally stand before your heavenly father, sinless and perfect and holy, and you have an eternal hope in heaven because Jesus Christ loves you. Never forget that. Never let that go. Circumstances are going to tell you that God doesn't. The scriptures are going to tell you that he does. Rest in God's particular love for you. It's the first key to dealing with unmet expectations and disappointments. We have a choice. We can view God God through the lens of our circumstances or we can view our circumstances through the lens of God's love That's the decision that you have to make. And there may be one or two or maybe 10 or 15 or 50 of us in here who are feeling right now, why God? Why me? Why is she able to have kids and I can't? Why did he get the promotion and I didn't? Why is he married and I'm still a bachelor? Why God? Don't let go of the truth that that God loves you. Don't view God through the circumstances of your life. View the circumstances of your life through the love of God and rest there. One of my favorite passages of Scripture in the Bible is taken from Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul's just explained the gospel. I just explained the gospel in a very poor way compared to the way the apostle does it in Romans. And then he says this, what shall we say to these things? How do we respond What is the implication and the impact in our life of the gospel? And he says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. And then he says this, he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? If God has given us Christ, and if God in Christ saved you particularly, And if God gave his best when he gave his son on the cross, why would he withhold his best now? You see, the reality is that your circumstance, the circumstances you're in right now is where God wants you to be. We'll talk more about that in a second. And knowing that he loves us, knowing that he is passionately committed to us, knowing that he is shaping and molding and transforming us through the circumstances and the journeys and the valleys of our lives allows us to rest, allows us to be at peace because we know that we're loved by God. That's what Malachi wanted the people of God to know 2,500 years ago. Now, I know that there are times when our head says, that's true, Paul. I affirm that, I believe that by faith but my feelings, my heart, my emotions are not, not close to being there. I'm, I'm a little schizophrenic. You know, roses are red, violets are blue. I'm schizophrenic, and so am I. And sometimes that's how, I, that's how sometimes I think about myself. I know the truth, but I don't know the truth. I know it intellectually, I don't know it experientially. My head says one thing, my heart's saying something else. And that's why Malachi now begins to speak about Worship, worship. Because having dealt with the intellectual side of things, we're loved by God, he begins to deal now more on the emotional level. So no matter the circumstances, we gotta continue to pursue authentic worship. 
Read with me from verse 10. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, the priests respond, how have we despised your name? God responds, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, the priests say, how have we polluted you? God says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised, treated with contempt. And this is how they do that. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God. Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Now, this is the important, I want you to see this verse. Verse 10, oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. And then God says this, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. What was happening here? God says, if I'm a father, if I'm master, if I'm Lord, where is my honor? Where is my fear? The priests respond back and saying, well, how have we despised your name? God says, you're allowing people to bring lame, blind, worthless sacrifices into the temple. Your attitude, priests, is we don't care what you bring. We're just glad you came. Come on in. Offer God whatever kind of garbage you want. He's good with it. They're still worshiping. The temple is still functioning. Everything looks like it should look like. But what people are bringing, what they're offering God, reflects a view of God that despises him. They're bringing their leftovers. They're bringing their garbage. They're bringing their junk. Blind, lame, worthless animals. And they're saying, here's my garbage, my second best for my second best God. Think of the contrast when Solomon dedicated the temple. They said there were so many sacrifices that day they couldn't count. Because the people in that day understood the magnificence and the glory and the majesty and the strength and the power of the God of Israel. And what, what, Ezekiel, what uh, Malachi is saying here is this, that our worship often reflects our perspective on God. And what Malachi is saying to these people What Malachi is saying to these people is this, invest in genuine worship until you perceive, until you see the greatness of the God of Israel again. Don't bring the garbage, bring your best. Don't bring your leftovers, don't bring what's cheap, don't bring what's worthless, don't despise God. Bring your best. And all of a sudden what you're gonna see is the other side. When you begin to bring your best, you will begin to see how great and magnificent our God really is. Invest in genuine worship till you see the greatness of our God. The word despise here, what the people were doing, just despising God, it means to hold in contempt or regard as worthless. You see, true worship reveals the glory, the worth, the magnificence, the greatness of our God to us, to us. 
What true worship does is gives us, first of all, perspective. And it's absolutely vital that we have perspective. When we're in the valley of life, when we're in those dark circumstances of our life, when we've prayed and God hasn't answered and we've been disappointed and we haven't gotten that promotion and the financial things have gotten tighter, when we're in the valley of, of, of those circumstances, worship allows us to climb out of the valley and get on the mountaintop so that we can see from God's vantage point. That's what we're doing right now. We're looking at life from God's vantage point. That's why preaching the scriptures is so important. That's why when we gather together, we sing truth that's full of meaning and packed with theology because it reminds us of what's true. It gives us perspective. It gives us context. It allows us to see clearly. That's why it's so important that tomorrow you find a quiet place and you get alone with the Bible and you open it and you say, Father, speak to me because I need to hear your voice. I need your perspective. I need to see your point of view. I want you to go with me to uh, Psalm 73. And you may have heard this psalm before, but Psalm 73 is a guy struggling with perspective. A guy struggling with perspective. Psalm of Asaph, we don't know when it was written. I think probably since Psalm 74 is also a Psalm of Asaph speaking about the destruction of the temple. It's a contemporary, he's fairly contemporaneous with Malachi. But listen to what he says, Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Can you relate to that? Yeah, I know God is a good God. I know he's a faithful God. I know he's a promise-keeping God. But as for me, I just don't know. I don't see it in my life. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They do not... They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Get down to verse 13. See, he's struggling. And then he says, this is conclusion. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's no good following God. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Then verse 16. And when I thought how to understand this, it seems to me a wearisome task. It's exactly the same word he uses over in Malachi. People say, this worship thing, it's wearisome, and they snort in derision. It's wearisome. And then he says this, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. You see, he, he was messed up. He was envious, he was jealous, he was disillusioned with God. He was thinking, there's no point in me living a righteous and noble life. I have kept my heart innocent. Why? It's all in vain. And then it went into worship. And in worship, I got a different perspective, a totally different point of view. So if you want to be one of those people who know what it means to live above the circumstances of your life, you will be a person who prioritizes worship, corporate worship and personal worship. It is just absolutely critical that you see from God's vantage point, and the only way that you do that is by worshiping him in spirit 
and in truth. But there's something else here. What verse 10 says to me is really shocking. He says, oh, I wish somebody, anybody, just please, somebody go and shut the doors of the temple, please. Because it's a charade. It's a mockery. It dishonors my name. It doesn't bring worth to me. It, it demonstrates that I am, in your, posi- in your point of view, worth less. So would somebody please just go shut the door and end it? And then he says this, for I have no pleasure in you. You see, if, if we receive perspective in worship, God receives pleasure. God receives pleasure. We worship for him. Yes, we're blessed with perspective, but more importantly, our purpose in worship is to glorify him, is to bring him pleasure. We worship God. Worship exists to bless him, to gladden his heart. Worship exists to bring him joy. Hebrews, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. And why? In order that he would come in moments like this, when we cease to be a bunch of individuals and we coalesce into the bride of Christ, and the Bible teaches us it's like a a man on his wedding day when his wife walks down the aisle and he looks at her and his heart is absolutely filled with joy. That's the picture that we should have when we enter worship. We need to be a beautiful, radiant, spotless, unified, joy-filled bride so that our bridegroom can take pleasure and joy in us. Worship that pleases God. Worship that pleases God, that attracts him to us, is worship that is focused on him what would our worship be like if we, priori- if we asked the question, what will please God this Sunday rather than what is going to please the people? What would happen to our worship? If we genuinely thought, asked that question, what does Jesus want? What is going to make his ha- heart glad? What songs are going to honor him? What kind of fellowship will bless him? Rather than being so man-centered, in our focus on worship. So much worship today is attractional. We've even sort of written books that talk about how appropriate it is. And and in my mind, it's just absolutely inappropriate. We're not about attracting people. We're about attracting the Lord Jesus Christ. We're about attracting the Spirit of God. This worship was attractional. Come as you are. Bring, Bring any kind of garbage you want. God doesn't care. We'll worship in the way we see fit. Bring your lame, bring your sick, bring, bring your junk. God doesn't care. We're just glad you came. We're just about attracting a crowd. That's attractional worship, and it is so unbiblical. You see, real worship, biblical worship, creates what I call a low-pressure area. So I was at our cottage a couple of weeks ago, and the, and the weather changed just like that, and the wind just came through. Like, it was unbelievable. It was a low-pressure area, and the wind was coming to fill that low-pressure When we worship in the way that God has called us to worship for his pleasure and for his joy, it creates a low-pressure area into which the wind of the Spirit of God rushes. And that's the church that's going to change the world. 
That's the church that's going to impact society because it pleases God. And when we have that kind of congregation, it pleases him and his spirit shows up. It attracts the presence of the spirit of God. So what is that kind of, it's, it's, what does that look like? It's, 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 it's truth. We sing truth to one another and to him. Our songs are filled with meaning, filled with theology, filled with truth, and we announce it boldly. We lift our hearts and our hands and our voices, and we declare the truth of who God is. And then somebody stands up here, and they open this book, and they preach from this book. They're, they're not up here to entertain you, to tell you stories, to make you laugh and make you cry and think, boy, what a comedian he is. That was awesome. That's, that's not the place of the preacher. The place of the preacher is simply so that you might hear God's voice. That, that's it. You might hear the voice of God audibly impacting you as the scriptures are read and unpacked and preached. The job of the preacher in authentic worship that pleases God is simply to exegete the passage, preach the passage, then apply it to our lives so that we can leave saying not how funny he was or how great he was or anything, just how great God is. It's for his glory and his honor. I don't want to be entertained by a preacher. I don't, want to, I don't want to stand up comic as a preacher. I don't want cute stories from my preacher. I don't want his opinions. I don't want his political point of view. I want God's word. And that's why I'm so excited about Ross coming, because that's what you're going to get from him. You're going to get God's word. Sunday after Sunday, he's going to exegete the scriptures. He's going to preach them to you faithfully. And he's going to apply them to our lives. And you're going to hear God's voice in his mouth. Let me take you to um, 1 Corinthians 14. I talked about this low-pressure area a second ago. I want, you to, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 14, because in this passage of Scripture, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about what real worship looks like, the kind of worship that pleases God. It's orderly. It's God-glorifying. It's very meaningful. It's purposeful. It's directional. It's towards him. But look at what he says in, down in verse, uh, verse 23. And he's talking about when the church comes together, and he asks this question. If the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders, so he's speaking in different languages so that other people can understand, like, like the day of Pentecost, everybody's speaking in tongues, and an outsider or an unbeliever enter, will those people, the outsider or the unbeliever, not say that you are out of your minds? And they will. But... If all prophesy, in other words, if all articulate truth, if we're all speaking truth, we're speaking God's word, and if God's word is central and focused, if all are speaking God's word, but all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider entered, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, so that falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is certainly among you. If Harvest Niagara wants to be that kind of church, they want to be a low-pressure area where the doors are flung wide open and the Spirit of God rushes in in power, we will be a church that focuses on pleasing God in our worship rather than pleasing me. The question when I go home this afternoon was not, what did you think of church? What did you think of the sermon? What did you think of the music? What did you think of whatever? The question is, what did God think? Was he pleased? Was he honored? Was he worshiped? Was, was the truth proclaimed? And if the answer to that is yes, expect the rushing wind of the Spirit of God in your church. And expect non-believers and non-Christians to walk in here and say, oh my gosh, I don't know what this is, but I'm staying until I figure it out. And they're going to fall on their face before you and before God, and they're going to say, God's in this place. 
God is here. That's the power of the church. So we need God's perspective, and we need his presence. We need to please him so that his presence is amongst us. There's so many churches that are doing church today just like they were doing it 2,500 years ago. They're not thinking about worship. Come and you just bring whatever, no big deal. God doesn't care. God cares a lot. And what they're doing is not worship. And it's so sad, so sad. And then lastly, when circumstances are not good and you're disillusioned, disappointed, discouraged with what's happening, you're wondering if God loves you, remember that he is still in control. Four times in this passage of Scripture, three times in this last section, God is going to say the same thing. And he's going to say this, my name will be great and it will be feared outside the borders of Israel. He says it in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Then beginning at verse 11, you see it again. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of my name will be great among the nations and every place incense will be offered to my name and pure offerings for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Down to verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now the people of Malachi's day wanted that. They wanted to see the name of the Lord made great as it was in Solomon's day. And so when the glory cloud of God's presence didn't show up in this great messianic age, this golden age of prosperity and peace and power for Israel didn't manifest, they were disillusioned. But listen, God had a plan. They couldn't have known that 450, 500 years later, the Son of God riding on the colt of a donkey the incarnate God of Israel would ride into Jerusalem and establish a new covenant in his blood for us. The most magnificent vision they had of the glory cloud of God falling in 516 AD paled into insignificance to what God had planned for them. But they didn't know. And they didn't trust. You see, so often... When we are in the difficult circumstances of our life, we have no idea what God is doing. We have no idea what he is accomplishing through our difficulty and in our pain and in the difficulty of our circumstances. You can't forget that God is in control and that his name will be glorified. His name will be glorified. He will be seen as great. How? Well, through the preaching of the gospel, through the ministry of the church, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell won't stop him. He will continue to save souls. He will continue to change hearts. He will continue to march triumphantly through the corridors of time until every nation becomes a believing nation, I believe. Until Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. Until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus has begun something and he cannot and will not be stopped. He will be victorious. But more than that, he has made us more than conquerors. More than conquerors. And he is using you 
in the difficulties of your circumstances, in the disappointments of your life, in the setbacks, in the diagnosis, and ultimately in your death to glorify and honor and praise him. God uses the difficulties in our lives to allow the world to see that his name is great. Nothing, nothing that happens in our life is not first sifted through the hands of his love and his grace and his care for you. So Paul says this, all things, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And in the difficulties of your life, you may be prone to say, Paul, all things, all my singleness, my spouse just left, I just lost my job, all things, Paul? The doctor told me I get six months, all things? All things, all things, all things. These people had no clue what God was gonna do. No clue at all what God was gonna do. Think about it. They were complaining because the glory cloud of God's presence hadn't fallen. They wanted a repeat of Old Testament Israel. We want to go back to Solomon's day. God, it's so much more for them. So much more for us. And even in death, even in the end, we have such hope, such encouragement, such a future. All things, all things work together for good to those who love God. He is in control. When my prodigal child hasn't been saved yet, when God hasn't answered my prayer for that financial problem, when I haven't found my spouse, he is in control. He is sovereign, and you can rest there. So when the, when the struggles of life threaten to overwhelm you, when circumstances seem bigger and out of control, and you're tempted to see God through the lens of your circumstance, Look at your circumstances through the lens that God gives us. Remember, you are loved. Individually, personally, and particularly, you're known and loved by God. Worship Him. Get perspective and do it in a way that brings Him pleasure. And the Spirit of God will rush into this place and into your lives. And remember, He has got a plan. He is in control Nothing that transpires in your life is an accident. It's not out of control. He has a purpose in it all. And he, as he did with, in Malachi's day, he will glorify himself in that in ways that are so magnificent, so wonderful. Think about it. They had the glory cloud or the incarnate son of the living God riding into the city to die and rise again. What would you have chosen? From a position of hindsight, I would have said, for sure, the second, right? We don't have that. All we have is the opportunity to trust him right now, knowing that he is working all things together for good, our good, for his glory, so we can rest there. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that you are a good God, despite what our circumstances say. I pray that you would teach us to rest in the fact that you love us, Teach us to worship in a way that gives us perspective and pleases you. And teach us, Lord, that you are a sovereign, good God that we can trust 
in all things and in all circumstances, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.